There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome everybody to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. Um, Bill Roden, and uh, we're doing something a little different. Uh, the fellows who normally are on the podcast, uh, Deja, Isaiah, and um, Tucker, are currently in D.C. working their behinds off. But anyway, since they're not on the line, um, I've got um, Jamal Murphy. Uh, many of you, he's been on uh, the Roden Fellows podcast before. He gets to be on because he went to A&T. And although A&T was a very bitter rival at, at, to Morgan State, and I always wonder why I, I had his brother on. <laughs> Aggie Pride. Aggie Pride, yeah, man. Probably, yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I cut that it out. Can't, I can't. can't say that. I can't say that on, on HBCU 468. Anyway, uh, we got a, we got a great guest this week, Gotti Thurman. Uh, many of you who are college basketball buffs, uh, if you're over a certain age, probably if you're, I guess, if you're over 40, maybe, 40, what, what would you think, 40? Isn't it amazing, Scotty, after a certain age, man, like when you're in the moment, like you are like getting parades after a certain, and then the next wave comes in. Next wave like comes in. Say, yeah, I was at Arkansas 94. I said, yeah, man. Castle just look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us about Zion. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, Scotty, Scotty Thurman was an All-American at uh, at uh, Arkansas, University of Arkansas, won a national championship with the Razorbacks, uh, 94. And you tease, I was like courtside when he hit the dagger. He hit the three-point dagger that beat Duke. The game was like down. It was like in the clutch. And Scotty Thurman hit this clutch three-pointer that basically was a dagger. And uh, Grant Hill was on that team. Who else was on that team? Jeff Cable was on that team. Ah, who's our coach Yeah, now? Chris Collins, who's the head coach of Northwestern mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else did they have? Cherokee Parks, who works oh, with yeah. the NBA. Mm-hmm. Cherokee Parks. Yeah. So funny how... How guys like when he was a freshman, it's like they got he was supposed to be yeah. the guy. What, he played they, in the league for a little bit, about, about twelve years. Yeah, yeah. he played twelve years. Yeah, wow. Uh, let's see, Grant played obviously for like yeah. he had a long career. Hall of he's in the Hall of Fame. Then on your squad, man, you guys were loaded too. Yeah, Corey Williamson, Corey Beck, Dwight Stewart, uh, Clint McDaniel, mm. Alex Dillard, long range bomber. Mm. Wow. But, oh, that's right. Day and Mayberry were gone. Yeah, they were gone. They were gone by then. Yep. So you guys had reloaded. Yep. Ah, wow. Anyway, but I guess it's Scotty Thurman, uh, star of stage and screen. Uh, Scotty spent um, nine years at the University of Arkansas. Well, before that, he had a great pro basketball career. Uh, and it kinda, what's intriguing is that your career was not a pro basketball in the NBA, right. but it was you were getting paid. You, you right. played overseas. Right. You had a record like almost an eight year pro career right. overseas outside the United States. Then he uh, coached for three years at Arkansas, but he was at Arkansas for nine years as um, play, player development right. and also doing play by play. Let me let me ask you something about player development because I know you're very interested and focused on young guys who are making that transition. You know, you're at these big universities, but it must be very difficult 
to get these guys who are there to really touch all the wall, the, the great universe of these universities. You know, how, how hard is it to get these guys out there, and I'm talking about out there silos? Uh, it's very difficult because that's not what they feel like they came for. Um, so you're kind of going against the grain, so to speak. Most of their conversations are based off of athletics, based off their performance, based off how good they think they'll be, how good the team will be, as opposed to, hey, we're going to do community service at the Boys and Girls Club, or, hey, we're going to uh, go do Samaritan's feed and we're going to clean some kids' feet and, and, and give them shoes, mm-hmm. or, you know, we're going to have a financial literacy workshop. So sometimes I, I look at it as though you have to kind of trick them to, to get them to see the value and the way it's going to help them going forward. Uh, always giving them examples of not only myself, but other guys that may didn't take advantage of, of the opportunities that presented before them and getting them to understand that, you know, once you're four years or two years or however long your hair is up, you've got to be able to do something else besides just play basketball. Otherwise, you know, it, it really didn't count. The time that you spent here didn't count as well as it could have. Mm-hmm. How, how uh, difficult, I don't know that, one guy you talked to, you kind of mentored through, was a uh, Portis, um, who uh, was it three years ago, maybe. Uh, it's been about four now. Four, four yeah, years. Yeah. He's happened to have a great career. He's having a really, really nice career. But what was it like with a, with a guy like that? Because um, he had decisions he had to make. Right. What was it like dealing with? Well, it was <clears throat> he was a little bit easier just due to the fact that he's always been grounded. Um, his mom was a very hard worker, kind of come from a single parent home. So when you've got the support of a parent and you can pick up the phone and call and you guys can kind of piggyback off one another, the discussions that need to be had, the things he needs to hear, it's a lot easier. So he's a little bit different, but he was driven kid, you know, driven to be good, not only at basketball, but to be a well-rounded young man, whereas some of these guys don't really have that, that upbringing. And with those guys, you kind of got to be able to paint the pictures kind of like when we were growing up, you play basketball, coach tell you to run through the wall, you just sprint through it. <laughs> now they're going to run to the wall and get to it and ask you, okay, you sure this is what you want me to do? <laughs> so, you know, you kind of got to convince them and let them see the value and the things that you're trying to share. So I would just really be transparent about my life and the things I've gone through. And I think a lot of them are very receptive to it just because transparency, I think, is kind of the key to mentorship. You know, it's hard to mentor if you're perfect, but you want them to be perfect. You know, neither one of you is going to be perfect, so you got to be able to use some of your good and bad, and be able to try to impart the wisdom. Our kids today, really, is it, is it really the case that kids today are different from when you were a player in college, or is it about is it the same in terms of in terms of you know some kids will do you know want to go the extra mile, some kids don't. Is it really a difference? Uh, I think it's different somewhat, but I think it's you know, like I tell people, people always say kids change. I think parenting has changed. Um, I think it's parents are different now. Obviously, um, there are a lot more single parent homes than probably what they were back then. Just from you know, every year there's baby boomers or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that you know the kids themselves now with social media, um, with having coaches as borderline friends instead of mentors. You know, mm-hmm. I think back when I grew up, played. I don't ever remember playing a good game for any coach I ever played for. Mm-hmm. But I always respected each and every coach because the conversation we would have wouldn't just be basketball related. It would be, hey, how'd you do mm-hmm. on that math test that you had? How'd you do last night? Did you really study for that test? Or having other conversations outside basketball. And I think that's the only way uh, to help young people become well-rounded is to be able to have more conversations than just the athletic push. You spent the last three years as a, a coach. Uh, new regime came in and all that. But how different were the kids that you coached 
relative to, to, to like when you when you played? Uh, what was how drastically had the mindset changed? You know, same kids, you know, same age as you were when you got there. Uh, I guess same aspirations and all that. What was the major change that you found in trying to be a coach to these guys? I think mental toughness. Um, I think the mental toughness to fight through some things. Um, we kind of right now I call it a microwave age. Everybody wants something fast, and if they get to any type of resistance and things aren't going the way that they want, the quickest thing to do is either quit or run to the next place and feel like it's going to be better. Whereas when I was playing, you pick up the phone and call your parent and tell them you're not happy. Well, you better figure it out. You know, <laughs> that's where you chose to go. That's what's going to happen. You know, I was a victim of that myself. You know, my the year we won the championship, for a matter of fact, you know, I just played an Olympic festival <clears throat> after my freshman year. Got a chance to develop a relationship with guys like Jerry Stackhouse, Rasheed Wallace, and all those type guys. And then you look at when you're playing games, you're comparing what they're doing because, you know, here we are, we're rated high, they're rated high. But you see they're playing 28, 29 minutes a game against Bethune-Cookman padding their stats. And here we are, we're playing Bethune-Cookman beating about 40, and I might play nine minutes. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, feeling like I was being, you know, kind of done the wrong way. And I never, never forget, I was griping. We played, this was back when they had the MLK Classic in Memphis. It was us. I think it was USC, Georgetown. Oh, I remember that. You played in the pyramid. In Memphis, yeah, played in the pyramid. And I'll never forget, we just drilled Georgetown. And after the game, I wasn't happy. And I told my dad, I'm like, man, I think I need to go somewhere else. And he was like, what? (laughs) He was like, didn't you tell me this is where you want to go to school? I was like, yes, sir. He was like, well, that's what we're doing. There's none of that changing and packing up. Like, we don't do that. We fight through whatever we're going through. Now, lo and behold, a couple of months later, we won the national championship. But Mm -hmm. what would have happened had he said, you can go? Right. May have not happened. You Mm -hmm. know, who knows? Did you play now? Was it was the AAU phenomenon in place when you Mm -hmm. were playing? Yeah. So you played AAU? Yeah, I played AAU. All right. How how has that intensified, or how has that changed uh, everything we're talking about? Either from getting kids grounded, the mental toughness, the uh, sticking to it. How has that played into? Well, I think it's changed because there's so many different players now. You've got all of the different shoe companies now. You've got all the different employees that work for the various shoe companies. You know, it used to be you had the shoe salesman or the rep. They came, they sized you guys, this is the gear you're going to be getting. Now you've got the rep, you've got the camp director, you've got the youth director, you've got the international portion of it, and you still got all the social media stuff driving it. And I just think now, you know, back when we wanted to know how good a kid was, you either had to see him yourself or you picked up Hoop Scoop, Streets and Smiths, mm-hmm. and those type of things. Now you just go on Twitter. So every kid now is great. <laughs> doesn't matter. doesn't matter if he's – D2 level, doesn't matter if he's D3. I mean, I see kids now, like just recently at Arkansas, we just had a walk-on just a few minutes ago. You know how guys are releasing all these statements about, hey, I'm transferring, or I'm doing this, or I'm moving on. This guy puts out a letter saying that, you know, he's got to walk away from the game. Now, Grant, <laughs> great kid. Well, he was a walk-on. He's a walk-on. He's got to walk away. A walk-on. Like, Back when I played, the walk-ons didn't even get to practice. Right. You know, if somebody didn't sprain an ankle, he was just going to stand over there on the sideline. Right. But now you've got that happening. So I just What think, was his point? What was he saying? Well, he just wanted the, the fan base to know. <laughs> fan base. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's, it's amazing. I mean, he, right. wanted, he wanted the fan base to know that he was very thankful for the opportunity to have two years. And the major thing about this kid, though, is that every game that he played in, 
he scored. Every game. It didn't matter who we played. I think maybe one this year he did. Mm-hmm. But I'm 11 out of 12 games, we get up 20 or somebody, coach put him in at the end. Man, he may have a highlight play, you know, highlight up and under move or pull up three from crossing half court. Now, I don't know if that was just favor, right? but I mean, he wasn't a quote unquote high level D1 athlete, you know, great kid, great for the program, great to have around. But in his eyes, you know, he saw something more for himself and, for you to be able to be a walk on and release that statement to me, that's just so. Where is he amazing. announced that he's going to another program? No, I don't think he's even doing that. I think he just wants to raise a back fan base to know that he's kind of moving on with his life. So he will, he will not be on the team. Will not be on the team. The last I heard, he's working at Chick Fil A and going to school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's good. Yeah. Good for him. Right. Yeah, great for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point with even with Zion, I mean, first time he, I mean, like he had this whole Twitter. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the reality is that if if that technology was there when you were playing, it would have been right on Twitter, right, right, right. And it's a promotional tool now. Sometimes you can make yourself even come even before college. I've seen this. I have a friend who has a son playing like high level baseball, and he's like, they're like internet sensations. You know, they they actually get recruited based off you know the the videos they put together, the promos they put together themselves on Twitter. So. They're making names for themselves like that. Uh, you know, we were talking off mic about HBC, you know, historically black college university, and you just mentioned playing Bethune-Cookman. Right. And, and that was sort of used as a gauge. Well, <laughs> you being about 50, well, hell, we being about 70. Yeah. Right. And, and, and what, what's, Jen, I'm always curious, you know, one day, one day, five kids are going to do what Chris Weber and them did, except going to the University of Michigan they're going to go to a place like uh, uh, University of North Carolina Central or A&T. Or five kids. I mean, it may seem very unlikely, but like that's why you have Dr. King or Gandhi. Or, right. they're, they're, those kind of people, are, or Kaepernick, those kind of people are very rare. But they come along, and one day five kids are going to have that commitment, take that team to a national championship and make a point, you know. But when you but what's the what's the uphill climb to that? As somebody who's you're a highly recruited player. You chose Arkansas. What tends to be the, the mindset uh, when, when they look at HBCUs, when kids look at HBCUs? I think part of the mindset is facilities. I mean, guys are wild by facilities. When you walk in these big, big arenas, you see a lot of fans, or when you walk in these empty practice facilities and you see the nice locker rooms and, you know, for some reason HBCUs have had a problems for years of just the fundraising portion of it and to be able to impress. Now, granted – the facilities don't help you become a better player if you don't use them. Um, it's going to come down to the people. You know, these big, beautiful academic centers, the same thing. If you don't go in there and study, then you're probably not going to get the information you need to be able to obtain your degree. I just think that the HBCUs are behind in terms of being able to generate, you know, the donations that it takes to be able to have the necessary facilities. I mean, you look at it back, what, three, four years ago when the guys from Grambling were basically boycotting because of their locker room situation and things like that. That to me is a is a black eye not only on Grambling but on all HBCUs because in the sports realm Grambling is kind of viewed pretty pretty highly especially from the football standpoint with the coverage mm-hmm. they get from the Bayou Classic. But if you think about all that money that's generated with the Bayou Classic, I don't know where the money goes, but it doesn't seem like there's been an emphasis placed on just the facilities portion of it in order to be able to wow these kids. I mean because I mean Grambling is a great school. My parents both went there, but for me growing up. 
if I go and see Grambling's football field or basketball facility, and then I go look at Arkansas, it's just completely different. Right, right, right. right. It's almost like sometimes like the chicken or the egg. Like you said, a lot of these other schools built their facilities off of the money, you know, off of the backs of athletes. Right. So, you know, maybe it'll take, you know, people to go there. But I mean, that's the that's that's like the million dollar question. I mean, yeah. you know, who who makes that first step? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, AT has done a really nice job. Mm-hmm. Of it. But again, that's sort of like you know, people like me, you know, alumni. You know, you got to give back. But also, you got to decide: is it worth it, or do we just kind of compete at our level, right. you know, and just kind of dominate your level? But I mean, the reality though is that we talk to our kids all the time, like the uh, Roden Fellows. You know, because a lot of them, I mean, it's not like their parents or their grandparents who kind of had to go to HBC. Like your your your, your parents' generation. Right. You know, these kids make a choice. Right. And a lot of them said that, yeah, we went to predominantly white schools throughout, you know, to grammar school, high school. I got tired. I just wanted to spend <laughs> four years. What was it like to be in the majority? You know, what was it like just to, for, for four years of my life? What was it like not to be the only black person in the class? And I guess even in Arkansas, you may have had a different experience as a black student at Arkansas because you were kind of on the protein. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't see you like they saw just other black people. Was that that kind of dichotomy? Um, I think so. You know, you you play with a team that everybody recognizes you, so you kind of get, I would say, treated a little bit differently. Um, I'm not stupid enough to not know that, but also I, where I grew up, you know, I was I saw a lot of you know, black, white, race relation issues. Um, so for me, I didn't think that I had to go to a black school to be around the majority, but that didn't necessarily mean that I felt like I was doing myself a disservice or something by not going to an HBCU school. I just viewed it as what was the best opportunity for me. If Grambling, I would have felt like had the best opportunity for me, I would have probably went to Grambling. But I just didn't see that. You know, everybody makes their decisions based off of different things, and I think that you know, the race part of it definitely plays a part in it when you're an athlete and you got people that are holding you to a high esteem. But I also think just from the HBCU standpoint, them being maybe more visible, them being maybe um, like, for example, when I was re- recruiting on the road, you know, some of the terms I went to, you may not see Grambling. You may mm-hmm. not you may not see UAPB, you know. And a lot of it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to be there, but they have to be selective too in terms of where their budget's going to allow them to go this time versus the next time. So I just think that the budget, like you look at the guy who donated the money to all those graduates from Howard. Right. right. That's going to pay off their stuff. Mm -hmm. Morehouse. Morehouse. Morehouse, I'm sorry. What if if there was someone who likes sports that much and said, you know what, we need to build this or we need to donate $10 to that. You know, and I think – there's some reluctancy because I think so so often HBCUs get a bad rap for, you know, managing funds sometimes too. And I think that's probably got something to do with it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, now Cam Newton's brother uh, goes to Howard. He's a quarterback at Howard. Of course, Cam's 6'5", he's like 5'10". <laughs> that's, a big, that's, a big, that's a big difference. You know, but he's talked about the different experiences of him going to Howard you know, not really being recruited on that, and then being there. And it's kind of like, you know, once you go through it, you know, it's like you said. I mean, I, I thought about that. I went to Morgan. But, I mean, I played football at Morgan. I wasn't really highly recruited, you know. But if I would have gone to University of Maryland anywhere, and you're just – and as you're 19, right. and all you're doing is looking at buildings, yep. facilities. Yep. Though, 
the experience as no, is more spiritual. Yeah. It's not you're not going to see what you're going to get out of it is nothing you see. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a spiritual kind of thing. You know, uh, we're going to take a short break and we come back. We're going to continue our discussion with Scotty Thurman, and we're going to talk about his relationship with young student athletes and how he gets them to actually take advantage of the resources on college campuses. You had a uh, just your playing career was kind of fascinating. You had that great sophomore year, mm-hmm. great junior year. How did your junior year decide to leave after your junior year? How has that affected how you relate to players? That a that you advise as director of development, and then when you became a head coach, how did that experience help you deal with these eighteen, nineteen year olds? Well, I would like to say probably just from having what I would consider to be the ultimate success, you know, from having won the national championship. And then people don't even talk about the fact we went back to the final four and had a chance to win it again. You see uh, right? Yeah. But just that success. And then you go from, you know, everybody loving you to feeling like you're on top of the world to then you don't get drafted and nobody really wants to talk about you anymore. If they do, it's in a derogatory manner. You know, I was able to use those experiences to be able to share with my guys because that's not something I hide from. You know, I think a lot of people hide from it. If I was 21, 22, I probably would. But, you know, at this point in my life, it's just something that happened. You know, other people's got things that have happened in their life that may not be something that's been great for them, but it may have paid off for them in the long run in terms of just giving them a learning experience. So what I've tried to do is, like, <clears throat> basketball for me is like being in a classroom, mm-hmm. just like being in a classroom literally and teaching a class. It's, it's not just the content that we're talking about. You know, for example, when I taught a class, 835, my class started. I gave everybody five-minute grace period. If you're not here at 8-4, I'm closing the door. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you play football. Doesn't matter if you play basketball. You can call coach. You can call whoever you want to call this. But this is my classroom. So my thing with that was when you go to work, people expect you to be at work on time. It doesn't matter that you had a flat. It doesn't matter that you had to drop your kid off and he was sick. Nobody really wants to hear that. At the end of the day, it's still work to be done. So what I try to explain to guys, whether they're playing ball or just regular students, at the end of the day, You've always got something to do. You've always got somebody that's going to hold you accountable for that. Even if they're not saying anything, they're still watching you. They're still observing to see if, okay, is he a guy that I can just, hey, get his project to and he's going to get it done? Or is he a guy that I've got to micromanage? Chances are, if you're a guy that's got to be micromanaged, you're probably not going to last long because people don't have time right. to be standing that's over right. your shoulder watching you. Right. Do, do you think, uh, you know, payment is a big issue? Com- well, I don't use the word payment. I use it as compensation. Because all kinds of ways to compensate. How, how do you feel about the issue of compensation? What form should it should it take? Should it be just at the Power Five schools? That if you, you know, it's almost a revenue sharing. Right. If you if you participate in schools that generate income, right. then you should somehow <laughs> share it. Yeah. Share, you know, how do you feel about that? I think it's something that should definitely be talked about. I mean, I think with the cost of attendance stuff that they've implemented, that's beneficial, especially the kids who come from very humble beginnings. Um, I don't really know how they could do it fairly, though, in terms of if you did a compensation plan because, you know, forget about conferences, but just think about one school, like take a school like Arkansas, and you've got a kid that's on the basketball team that he's the man, like Daniel Gafford. But then you got this walk-on we just talked about. Are they supposed to get the same? Or you've got a volleyball player 
that's basically they're not generating any revenue. Right. In the store. Yeah. How do you <laughs> how do you compensate them? So I think the problem is how do you make it fair? I would like to see something like an incentive plan, you know, saying if you accomplish, and I don't know what that would look like, but if you accomplish this, that, and the other, this is what you'll have for you once you graduate, whether that's X amount of dollars, whether that's this job opportunity, because there's so many different colleges that have all these alumni relationships for kids to get jobs. But if you look at it, they're graduating, not just student athletes, but just students in general. There's a lot of lag time between them times. A lot of them actually obtain employment. Right. And to me, that just shouldn't be the case because the university itself, you know, athletics gets killed for it, but the university itself is making millions as well. You know, all fees and mm. tuition and all those things. And then you got kids coming out that sit around for a year trying to figure out what it is they're going to do. And we basically educated them, but we haven't shown them the application part of it. Mm. How would you feel, I mean, a guy like Zion? Who clearly generated a lot of income? Who who benefited most out of that? Did Duke benefit more or did Zion benefit more? I think right now I'll say Duke, but you know if he goes out and signs a eighty million dollar deal with Nike, and then whatever he's going to get from his NBA, I'd probably go with Zion. But what about say Cam Reddish? He's probably not going to get eighty million dollar studio. He may get ten, twelve. So then. You know, what's the balance? So that's kind of one of those things that I think the school definitely benefited, but it's kind of hard to tell who's benefited most until it plays itself out. If he goes out and he has an all-star career and, you know, has all these endorsements, then it'll definitely be Zion. But if he just goes in and he's not a top-of-the-line, top-flight guy, then you may have to say Duke. Mm. What about, uh, you know, allowing players to benefit off off their likeness, like the O'Bannon issue? I know now the NCAA is looking into that. They've put some, they put like a committee together to look at that, uh, where they have, you know, on the committee, they have some, you know, ADs from big schools, but they also have ADs from like Division Two right. and Division Three who right. it might not apply to. But could you see that being a solution? Yeah, where, I do. Because well, then it'd be different for every player. Right. So whatever, you know, if, if you're Gafford, then you know you, you would get a high you know more people would yeah. want to sponsor you or whatever. Yeah, I think that's the only way to make it fair. If they did something like that, whether or not they're going to do it though, right, is something different. Because just think about that case: how much money would Zion have made this year? <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. So I think it's a situation that it definitely needs to be discussed, and I think it should be discussed along the lines of this compensation, as you just as you just mentioned, maybe being a uh, a balance. So now you don't have to try to figure out what the walk-on is going to get versus what Daniel Gaffer is going to get or what Zion is going to get because I don't think they'd ever really be able to figure that out and distribute it you right. know, fairly. One of the things I, w- I wish Zion would have done, all these one-and-dones, you know, it, to me it's such a waste that you go to these great schools and you, you're there for one year. There could be somebody in your community who is very worthy, you know, who's very worthy. So so what I know you got to work this out with infractions, but Zion says there's a condition we're going to do. We've identified this worthy person in my community or neighborhood. They get the four-year scholarship that I'm not going to get because right. I'm out of here in one right. year. But, uh, you know, Jamal Murphy or, or Jamal's sister is a very worthy. Every GPA is great. Can't afford to go to Duke. Right. And I would like her to graduate debt-free. Uh, and I tell you that to Duke. Kentucky, whatever, 
that's a condition of me signing. To me, that you leave a footprint. Yep. It's not just one and done, but you do something to benefit somebody else. Right. So I'm out of here, but it's for, what do you think about that? Right. I mean, I I like the idea. I like the premise. You know, I just know when coaches start thinking about their scholarship count, if mm-hmm. giving Zion scholarship to someone that can't help them win any games, most coaches just aren't going to be for. But I do think that that would definitely be something that would would be good. I mean, especially for a kid like that and for a lot of kids. I mean, you got a lot of kids out here that's not playing sports that are performing well academically that are not going to be able to afford to go to school at Duke, Arkansas, or anywhere like that that could benefit from something like that. So I think – Really, to me, that should be something that the adults are talking about. Because a kid like Zion, right? we know he's not going to be thinking about that. You, 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 that's what we're talking about. It has to be somebody above. Right, right. Just like with KD, it has to be an adult. Right. The franchise says no. Right. And it has to be a parent or somebody to say, Look, I think, why don't we do this? Right. And you're right. You know, the coach is looking for scholarship. But if you want Zion... Or wherever the top ten kids yeah, are, yeah, if you it. want them, then this is what you want. If you don't find out, oh, uh, they said they'll do it. Right. But it, it's and again, that's just like the whole idea of of five kids starting to go to HBC. What we're talking about is a level of consciousness that I'm, I'm wondering: does that exist? You know, when you're talking about this rat race of AAU and this right. rat race of the microwave age, and 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 then not studying history, not studying Black history, not studying. Well, there are people like Malcolm. There are people who got killed. Yep. There are people who who went on marches so your black butt can come to Arkansas and Alabama. There are people who were humiliated. There are people, you right. know, and, and too often our kids don't. They say, you know, like one kid asked me, um, uh, like about twenty years ago, something like this middle middle school kid, and she asked me, uh, said, "Who was the first white player to integrate the NBA?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so I, you know, I thought, well, it makes sense for her to ask that because in her thing, yeah. that the NBA has always been like eighty percent black, yeah. NFL has always been set, you know. So, but then you got to teach her. Well, no, this is how it got to be eighty percent right. black. There were people who were who marched. There are people who got hit with rocks. There are people who got died. Yeah. And then I think once you know that, then you kind of say, okay, now. You, you, you'll you make a decision to be neutral, but at least yeah. you'll know I'm volunteering not to deal with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the biggest problems, too, is that most college coaches don't view themselves as educators. They mm. view themselves as coaches only. You know, back when I was growing up, a coach was everything. You know, a coach was a teacher. He could be your parent. If yeah. your parent was at work or couldn't make it there, it could actually fill the role of your parent in a lot of ways, you know, back then. But now it's like basketball. I coach basketball. That's what I do. You never really hear many coaches talk about, you know, I'm trying to develop these young men into quality people. Trying to so in order to do that you gotta educate. You can't just draw up a play. Okay, you drew up the play, but what about some of the things like you're talking about? You know, social things, you know, things about who paved the way for you or how you actually got here. Why you allowed to be here versus people who couldn't even step foot, you know, on this campus. And I just think that you got a lot of AAU coaches that are driven to hopefully get their chance to be a college coach or maybe at that right prep school. So the motivation for them is all financial based. It's not necessarily based off of this kid or that kid and trying to make sure that they're being developed. Because at the end of the day, if you give me your kid, you're trusting me to develop him. You're not trusting me to just help him be a basketball player because if he blows his knee out, right, 
you know, what else has he got to stand on? But, but yeah, so, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, the money. I'm just for trying to figure out why that is. Like, why there were coaches back in the day that were willing to do that. And you still have, you do have coaches now, yeah. like you. You yeah. are a coach who yeah. thinks that way. Yeah. So why, you know, why aren't there more of that? I think some of it's the, the culture, pretty much. And I think some of it is the way that different coaches have come into the profession. Like, if you look at my former coach, Coach Richardson. Yes, that's right. He coached seventh grade, eighth grade, mm-hmm. ninth grade, all the way up through high school, junior college, then went to Tulsa, which at the time was, you know, considered a just a landing spot for certain people, not necessarily a big time program. They had right. success. But if you're coaching eighth and ninth grade, you you know you're teaching class. Right. So you have to Prepare. You got to have a lesson plan. You got to be organized. You got to do all those things. But a lot of coaches now, they skip all that. They, they don't go junior high. They go GA. So now all you see is the college game. So if that guy only sees college game, if his coach is not an educator, he's just a basketball guy, then that's what he's learning. Right. Versus being under a guy that's going to say, okay, hey, listen, when you coach teams, it's not just about basketball. You got to make sure these guys know you care about them. They got to make sure you know that if they happen to injure themselves, you're still going to go to bat for them. If, if the next level is what you want to do, if getting the jobs what you want to do, whatever the case may be. And I just think that there's not not a lot. There's some there's some elite level coaches that do, mm-hmm. but then there's also some that that don't. And I think there's probably a lot more that don't than do, than do. Let me ask you a question. Your staff got let go, right? And you know, in our business, it can be so insensitive. We write about this stuff. You know, well, so and so got fired, or so and so should get fired, so and so, and it's almost like cartoon characters, right. as opposed to these are people who have families, right. who have to uproot, who've got to go. I mean, it's like a surreal thing. It's right. not just thing. What's it like when you're on the bench and you begin to feel that pressure? Right. You know, and, and and again, you could do a lot of stuff when you feel that pressure. What's that like being on that side? Well, for me, it was it was more difficult seeing some of the people that I have have feelings for and that I you know want to see do well in life. Really, some of the younger guys, the guys like you know, we had a thirty-one year old video coordinator, we had a twenty-nine year old assistant ops guy just got married. Mm. You know, so for me, I was more concerned about those guys. Obviously, I felt for Coach Anderson because he had to go under the public scrutiny of it. And then you know, we had two other coaches that were affected besides myself. Uh, but for me personally. I was hurt, but I look at it as part of life. I mean, coaches get hired to get fired. That's just the way it is. I mean, the NBA, you got coach of the years getting fired, you know. So, I mean, I, when, when Coach Richardson got fired, back when he got fired, to me that taught me the thing of right. anybody can go. Right. I mean, you're always you're always replaceable. It doesn't matter who you are. You can, you can feel confident about yourself if you want, but if you don't perform, you're going to get fired. So, for me – I never really felt the pressure of like, oh man, we lose our jobs. Like, we got to go get another one. I mean, that's right. that's the only thing I know to do. I mean, right. you can't sit back. Nobody's gonna feel sorry for you. Nobody's gonna, you know. But it's unfortunate that I think sometimes the media, you know, it takes it and spins it. Oh, he should be let go. Not thinking like, okay, what about his kids? You know, right. what about his wife? What about him? And I just think sometimes people just overlook it because for them it's oh, this is my job too to write this story. And granted, that, that's all true too. But I think too many times it's like just swept under the rug. Like this guy's really calling for your head, 
And if I came to your job and watched what you do, (laughs) I may be calling for yours, you know, because I don't think you're very good at what you do. (laughs) I think people take it. People really treat it like a game. Yeah. Like they it's a it's a game and they but they treat it like a game, like it's a video game. You know, like these are real. I remember uh, uh, my daughter uh, played. She played this this league, 12 years old. And, you know, one day the coach had to be out of town for two weeks. And she said, you know, could I coach? And man, you know, so that that two weeks, man, it was like <laughs> I got it was obsessive, man. I mean, these like twelve years. This is a little league in the village. What is right. man? I was like, and they they were getting ready to play some team that had lost. So man, I was like, I had them, I actually had them do an extra practice. <laughs> we, we 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 did an extra practice, and then I found all the games this team had played, and I was like <laughs> charting it. Said where she liked the star player. We're gonna. I mean, it was like getting. The, so then you do these extra practices. We did this one practice, man. We put like a. I put a donut on the basket. We did nothing for like a half hour. Nothing but rebound. Yeah. <laughs> Just nothing but rebound. You know, and they were like fighting each other. These like little middle class kids. You know, I said rebound is like a matter of desire. Uh-huh. I'm like, Rose, listen to yourself. <laughs> so then you had this plan, and then when you get to the game. And then you watch helplessly as like (laughs) they do the exact opposite. And I said, that day, Scott, I said, you know what? I will never, ever, (laughs) Don't criticize the coaches. Call for a coach to be, I will never, (laughs) unless you get caught with goats or something. (laughs) But I mean, I'm like saying, I said, no. And then after the two, I said, I will never, because it's just like you just said. I mean, so much of the stuff is out of your control. Yep. Yep, that's why you got to make sure in recruiting that you recruit a kid or kids that can be a coach on the floor for you because otherwise you will feel helpless. I mean, you've got to be able to look out there and say whatever defense we're in and know that that message is getting delivered, whatever the case may be. Or if you know you're going through a rough time as a team, you lost a couple in a row. You know who is that guy in the locker room that's going to be able to rally guys together and realize, okay, we're all right. We lost a couple, but we're going to you know bounce back. And I think. That's something to me that's almost like a hidden art because everybody watches kids play, but nobody is looking for those intangibles. You know, you may see this guy score 40 points. Oh, man, he can play. But you didn't look at the fact that when his coach took him out of his game, he was pissed. He didn't yeah. shake anybody's hand. You're just excited about the fact that he can score. And I think a lot of times the intangibles get overlooked today, whereas, you know, you hear people saying, he, he's so smart. He's got high basketball IQ. That wasn't a focal point back in the day. A guy just knew how to play. <laughs> you know, you don't really know if he's got a high IQ or not. But it's just amazing how the narrative can can be changed. Yeah. What's, what's your opinion on the? I mean, you kind of you kind of just touched on it in terms of uh, you know, coaches not coming up from from, from you know grade school and and. And used to teaching and that kind of thing, but what's your what's your thought on the state of the profession? Um, even you know, for someone like yourself, as, as, as a black man, uh, head coach, I was looking at the stats the other day. I was surprised that in in Power Five conferences plus the Big East, I looked fifty six percent of the assist, assistant coaches are black. So I was surprised. I was expecting to see like twenty or thirty percent, right. but then I looked at the head coaches. And it was 17%. Right. So then I looked at it like, you know, most people get into the profession, you know, usually you become assistant coach because you want to be a head coach. Right. So it's kind of, there's, there's something blocking right. that right there. Like right now, I mean, I wrote this piece during the tournament, 
and you got the Big Ten and the Pac-12 didn't have a black head coach. Yep. The Big Ten and the Pac-12. Right. And then you look at the other Power Five cameras, like one hit, two, you know. Yep. I mean, but yet, you you know, on the court, you know, you know, it's like 80%, maybe yeah. 90% of the starting are like black kids. What's the, you know, what's the disconnect there? Now, that's something I haven't quite figured out. It's, it's, uh, it's racism, but now let's work our way. I mean, the simple answer right. is it's racism and all that. But how do you? And how can we? I mean, yeah. is there some something more that the coaches could can do? Is there some? I mean, I, yeah, right. We know it's we know it's racism. We know people who make the decisions have right. to change the way they think. Is there something that maybe as you know, if, if I'm if I'm if I'm an aspiring coach, what do I need to do? To to make sure I get an opportunity. Well, I think if there's you, anything I can do. Yeah, I think you got to definitely network, mm-hmm. and I mean networking doesn't stop. You know, I think sometimes people meet people, and then that's it. I met him, it's over. I think you got to continue to keep those relationships going. Um, I think there's also got to be an initiative from the head coaches that are currently sitting in those seats to try to empower some of the younger guys coming up, showing them the way, things they need to do, kind of like John Thompson used to do, right. Coach Richards used to do. Right. You know, I think that's kind of gone away uh, in a sense because now it's like everybody's trying to protect themselves, especially in light of the FBI stuff and all the stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that, you know, guys try to uplift each other. And I, I don't see a lot of that. I will mm-hmm. say that. I don't see a lot of um, just being in the, on the bench for three years mm-hmm. and being in the circuit and in those areas, in those arenas. It's kind of amazing how, you know, people don't seem to be really, like, pulling for the other guy. Mm. Like, okay, I understand we're competing against one another, but that still shouldn't stop me from wanting to see you do well and wanting right. to see you have an mm. opportunity to maybe move up to an associate mm. coach, then to a head coach. I think so many times it's kind of like I'm pulling you down, right. trying to climb up your back so mm. it can be me, right. as opposed to a bit not thinking about if you get that shot, if I help you in any kind of way or we got a relationship. Right. You may feel comfortable enough for me to reach out to me and give me a shot. Right, that's right. And that's all professions, right? right. right. Across like, the board. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm I'm an attorney. I see law firms. <laughs> it's even worse. Yeah, you talk about seventy seventeen percent head coaches. You look at a big law firm. They might have, they might have uh, of all their partners. It's like two yeah. percent. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, but the only the only difference is when you look at basketball, you look at see what's on the court and what and where the money's being made. And it's being made on the backs right. of black people, so it hurts even more right. when you. Because that's that. the one. That's the one area right. where we've got a critical mass of black folks. Yep. You know the NBA, the NFL. You know where it's one area where you could actually, if we could ever come together. Yep. You know, it's, it's something that Doc Rivers said. It's just, he remember when uh, Ray Allen joined the Celtics. Yep. Ray Allen and uh, and uh, Garnett Garnett joined Pierce, and um, he had this thing called Ubuntu. Uh, it's just a South African thing, but it's like the, the co-ed, I need you to be great, yep. so I can be great. Right. You know, I want you know, you know, and it's it's a simple yep. thing. And and black folks, I guess we kind of had to do that at a certain yep. point in history. But it's like I really need you to be great, so I can be great. Yep. And not only that, I replace that need where I want you to be great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know right, what I'm right, saying? Right, right. But I'll take need. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. But, yeah. But, but yeah. I don't have any reason for you not not to right. want you to be great. You right. know, I want you to be great. So if you're great, at least I can be viewed as possibly being great. Right. You know, and I think right. so many people, they're worried about themselves being great. I think there's a selfish mentality kind of in the collegiate, mm-hmm. collegiate game, especially from a coaches, because, I mean, you hear about a guy get a job. Instead of you congratulating him, it's more, man, he got that job. He ain't it. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So he got it, but you didn't do what he needed to do. To, he got it. 
what did you do? Right. They, were they supposed to just come tap you on your back right. and give it to you? So I think the networking piece, but I think more importantly, like, the black coaches that are in positions, especially the ones who have, quote, unquote, you know, notoriety that are actually performing at a high, high level, to me it's their job to pull those guys back. It shouldn't be they waiting on you. You should be, hey, man, I need right. you to do this. I'm trying to get you ready. Right. That's right. what it should be because right. if I'm a guy that's been doing it 30 years, I'm on my way out anyway. Right. That's right. And that's what, the, that's what white coaches do. Yep. You know, when right. you look, who's next to them? Who's do, who's the assistant, like the head assistant or the the you know the, the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, you yeah. know, not just the recruiter. Right. That's right. You know? I mean, I look at, at at the final fours and all that, and if you look at press row, number one is like they mean like ninety percent white, more than that. But if it gets even whiter, when you go behind the scenes, yeah. you know, when you look at the kids who hand out stats, when you look at who's doing stadium manager, I mean, hey, no black kids in that, no. and for every older white person you see who's given to another young person. That's like generational stuff, just kind of giving this stuff back. So we, yeah. You know, not even in that game. So, you know, I was telling a lot of guys in the NBA, I mean, why don't you walk through your organization sometime before you just go out and leave the building? Why don't you walk through the building and see how many people in your building look like you? Look at, Go to the marketing, advertising, go to the thing. You, you know, you may not give a damn, but you may like say, damn. You know, yep. that, that is like <laughs> <Right>. the plantation. <laughs> now, your job is to uh, lift that bale and tote that barn. That's your job. We got everything else. We'll do everything else. We'll do all the other stuff. You know, so it's amazing. Scott, last thing before we let you on that note. Uh, do you want to do this again? Do you want to coach again? I'd like to coach, but I'm not a I'm not a coach at all cost type of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm working for somebody or if I'm working at an institution that I like and that I feel like is a good fit, then yeah. But I don't want to coach just to say I'm coaching. You know, I don't want to just take a job to be anywhere and inconvenience my family. Oh, I'm coaching, though. You know, I kind of want to make sure that I'm in the right situation and that I can actually go in there and have an impact on whatever program that is in my own way and, and not be uh, put in a situation where, okay, we want you here, but this is all we want you to do. You can't do because I've always seen myself as more than just a basketball player, coach, or any of that. You know, I feel like I'm a versatile guy that can do a lot of different things, and I want to be able to give myself a chance to do so, whether that's coaching, administration, player development, what have you. I mean, as a, as a coach, what do you how, what do you bring to a team? Um, <clears throat> experience, uh, both as a player and coach, um, a winning attitude every day. You know, I come to work every day ready to try to win the day, not – I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about winning the day. Um, and then credibility. Hmm. Um, because when I walk in a kid's locker room, I'm in a kid's home, I'm going to be able to tell them what it really what it really is and, right. and what we're really trying to do as opposed to just telling you BS. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, some guys got sales pitches. Right. You know, I don't really have a sales pitch. I got the truth pitch. And, you know, I let every parent know if I'm involved with your kid and I'm kind of the conduit between you, him, and the head coach, so if, God forbid, you're calling up here trying to find out where your son is, I want to be able to tell you, hey, I just saw him, he's he's doing this. Well, he hadn't returned my call. You know, I think a lot of parents, they they like that. You know, they like having somebody that they can lean on that's going to make sure that their young man is doing If i got to go check his class, if i got to make sure that he goes and gets his ID, if he's got a parking ticket, instead of hitting you up about the money, I'm going to make sure we get it squared away. So all the experiences I've been able to have as a, as a director, student athlete development, all those things, I think, are what actually make me a better coach because I'm not just trying to win the game on the floor. I'm trying to mm-hmm. win it in life, too. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Coach, uh, where's that package of money? <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got that. Yeah, I, matter, matter of fact, it's a bad connection. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's been uh, the great Scotty Thurman. Uh, Scott, man, thanks so much, man. This is no, this is no great. problem, man. Thank and you, you know, guys for having me. I got to thank your 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 wife and your daughter who really patiently <laughs> sat through this marathon when as New York awaits. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, thank you so much, right. um, Scott. If people want to follow you, what's your what's your social media? They can follow me on Twitter at Rustin Rifle. That's at capital R U S T O N capital R I F L E. Oh, cool. All right. Jamal? You can follow me on Twitter at Blackatologist, B-L-A-C-K-E-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. Um, same thing on Instagram, Facebook, just Jamal Murphy. And you can follow me on Twitter at W.C. Roden. That's at W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. Before we close out, I just wanted to mention some cool content coming out of The Undefeated. The NBA draft is the Met Gala for young black men. Looking Sharp includes getting shaped up from beard to edges. Visit The Undefeated to check out Confessions from the Barber Chair, where we talk to Carl Anthony Towns about his style and how Gillette helps keep his skin and beard so fresh and so clean. That's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at The Undefeated. Hashtag Roden Fellows. Thanks for listening to this Roden Fellows podcast. Uh, the show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bamani Jones and Morning Roast, by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone. 